Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's word, fellowship, and prayer. Hey guys, uh, I love you. It's good to be with you. Happy Sunday. Um, We're going to be in Acts chapter 15 today. Um, Before we get into it, I just want to remind you, please be reaching out to those who have uh, shown signs of struggling uh, emotionally, spiritually. Be reaching out to them. And uh, and if that's you, please be receptive to that. You know, it's one thing to challenge uh, Kaya members and leaders to reach out, but you have to be willing. And so if you know you're struggling, uh, please be ready to receive uh, the grace that, that someone's extending to you and uh, and take their counsel and, and be held accountable to the message of Jesus Christ for your life. Um, you know, we don't we don't want um, you to, to, to feel like you're alone in this season. And so please receive the friendship and the love of the brothers and sisters. Also, if you've got some extra hours in your week, if you know you've got a lot of, of free time as the semester winds down or, or maybe just as you're in isolation, there is work to be done. There's administrative work to be done. There are volunteer hours that could be, could be, uh, you know, used here at the church physically. If, if you've got time to labor here and to, to work out in the yard on the lawn or, or, or even clean here at the church, uh, please reach out to your Bible study leaders. There's work to be done. We want to come back uh, from this quarantine stronger, not weaker, and uh, ready to move forward in the fall with the new school year. There's planning to be done, planning for the fall retreat. Um, there is, you know, uh, audiovisual work that needs to be done. And so we need we need your help. And if you're willing to offer it and you've got a particular skill set or gifting, please reach out to your Bible study leader and, and then um, and then maybe we can work something out. Beyond that, this is my second time recording this message. So we need prayer. Um, I'm exhausted. I'm beat. And uh, that's OK. Uh, so let's let's ask the Lord for help. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you uh, for this time. And uh, and God, uh, I'm, I'm thankful to to preach your gospel and to um, to teach and to study your word. And uh, I would do it all day, every day, and, until I had no breath left in me. And um, and so, God, I'm, I'm thankful even for this opportunity to to share this message again. And uh, but, Lord, I do ask that the technology would hold up and, and that the audio would be recorded rightly. And and so, God, I just ask for your hope with that. Uh, but Lord, I also ask for uh, ready uh, hearers, and that uh, that Kaya would be ready to receive this message, and that they would understand just how fresh the grace of Jesus Christ is, and how beautiful and simple the gospel is, and that they would live lives that are, um, Lord, not impeded or encumbered by religious. Uh, nonsense or or the pride of a religious perspective, Lord, that they would not, um, Lord, force upon your gospel any any sort of, of unnecessary um, distraction or attraction, but Lord, that they would live and believe the simplicity of the death, burial, and resurrection, and that it would be on their tongue and, and on their lips, and that, uh, Lord, you would give them fruit at your judgment seat because they were quick to speak. Uh, Lord, help us to love you and thank you and, and, and celebrate the gospel today. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's message is called The Persistent War on Grace. And so um, there has been a war on grace. 
uh, for millennia now, there's been an attack. Satan has been wanting to undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ by adding on things to the gospel. And that's what we face here in Acts chapter 15 with the Judaizers. If you remember, a Judaizer is a, uh, is a person in the first century that followed Paul and, and uh, those that were preaching the gospel. And they were coming behind them and they were adding to the gospel this idea that people needed to follow the works of the law, the Mosaic law. And uh, in this case, uh, in Acts chapter 15, they were teaching in Antioch and they were teaching in the places that Paul and Barnabas had been preaching the gospel. And they were telling the, the recent converts uh, among the Gentiles uh, that they needed to be circumcised. Um, and, and, and for most of you, you know what circumcision is. Uh, that's the idea that, that the foreskin has to be cut off. And, and this was a part of the Mosaic law. This was a part of Jewish law and it was uh, very, very important to them culturally. And so what they did is they took this, this perspective and they forced it upon the gospel. And so they're going around teaching this and Paul and Barnabas catch wind of it in Antioch and, and, and their desire to protect the gospel lead them as well as these Judaizers to Jerusalem to deal with this once and for all. And so they go to meet with the apostles and uh, the other leaders in the church at that time, and they uh, they take up the debate. And uh, and history recollects this, and they call it the, the Council of Jerusalem. And, and throughout history, there's been so many councils in, in church history. And usually when you see a council, when you see a, a, a bunch of men getting together to debate an issue, it's because someone's a heretic, and someone isn't taking the simplicity of God's word seriously, and they're forcing uh, their authority and their opinions upon the simplicity of God's word. And that's the reason why you see people gathered together to have a council uh, to debate these issues. And that's what's happening here. Now, praise God that uh, this falls out the right way. At the end of our story, everyone's going to receive the truth of God's word and they're going to receive the revelation of God's word and they're going to believe in the simplicity of the grace of Jesus Christ and they are going to uh, to uh, repent of their, their perspective but uh, but it doesn't always work out that way. And history proves that there's a lot of false doctrines that have been spread because a bunch of men came together to have a council. Um, but here we are, uh, you know, Paul and Barnabas show up to Jerusalem. Verse 4 of Acts chapter 15, they arrive, it says, And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. And they rose up certain, uh, there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed. Okay, so what happens is they get there. There's a bit of a celebration. Maybe they have a meal. Look, Paul and Barnabas are in town. Let's hang out. And uh, they have a, a small moment to enjoy one another. But then soon the Judaizers speak up. And in this case, uh, it was the Pharisees specifically. And, and yes, there were, a, you know, oftentimes, you know, we villainize the Pharisees. And rightfully so in the Gospels, these, these guys, a lot of them are, um, you know, purveyors of, of false truths and they're, they're, they're haters of Jesus. And, but there are Pharisees that get saved. And Paul was one of those guys, right? He was a Pharisee that accepts the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Nicodemus is another one of those guys. And so we know that there are believing Pharisees that believe in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And some of these guys, because of their rich heritage and because of their, their love for the Mosaic Law and their love for temple worship fell prey to false ideas that somehow that they were supposed to, that, that, that believers in Jesus Christ were, were supposed to abide by and follow the Mosaic laws in order to be saved. And in fact, here in verse 5, it points to that, that it was needful to circumcise them and to com command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. 
And so everyone gathers together to debate this issue. Um, now, uh, let's see here. At this point in Jerusalem, we recognize that, uh, that you know, um, this is still considered to be kind of the hotbed and the, the authority for Christians worldwide. Primarily, the majority of Christians that existed in the world at this time were Jewish, and many of them still participated in temple worship. And so they would have church, but they would also go to the temple and they would follow all of these traditions that they grew up with. And, and so there was kind of a hybrid that was taking place. And um, man, so there was a lot of confusion. And, uh, and, and so we have this story that's really important to us because it, it provides for us a, a perspective and a doctrine that dispels the need for, for laws and traditions and ultimately any work that seeks to undermine the simplicity of the message of Jesus Christ. Now, before we get into all of that, I, I want to point to you that Galatians chapter 2 provides for us a parallel story with this one. In other words, here in Acts chapter 15, we have Luke's account of what happened during the Council of Jerusalem. But Paul has an account of what happened as well over in Galatians chapter 2. And in Paul's version of the story, uh, he talks about Titus because, because Titus kind of sits as a central figure uh, because Titus is being told that he needs to be circumcised. He's, he's, he's kind of one of the leaders in the Antioch church who's being told, look, you buddy, you need to be circumcised. You need to be following the Mosaic law. And so Titus goes with them to Jerusalem. And here's Paul's account. Follow with me for just a sec. Verse 1 says, Then 14 years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of the reputa of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. In other words, it was not Titus's conviction, and I wasn't going to tell him that he needed to get to get circumcised. And uh, and it says, and that being because of false brethren, we'll come back to that phrase, false brethren unawares brought in who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us unto bondage to whom we gave place by subjection. No, not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But of these who seem to be somewhat whatsoever they were, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person for they, uh, for they who seem to be somewhat in confidence added nothing to me. Okay, so that's real King Jamesy there. But let me uh, make that out for you. In other words, Paul's saying, I get it. These guys were Pharisees and these were, these were men of power. And they might have appeared to be somewhat powerful, but to me, I'm, I'm no respecter of persons. And so I recognize that these were just men. And they made their opinion known. And they spoke, to with, spoke with us um, privately and publicly for, for quite some time about their position. But that was of no matter to me. So here we have, we have this dude, Titus, who was a Greek and didn't want to be circumcised. And Paul wasn't going to make him. And uh, now if you're familiar with the, with Paul and this history of circumcision, you've got Titus on one hand, who Paul is saying, look, Titus, you don't need to, if this is not your conviction, you don't need to be circumcised. On the other hand, you have Timothy, who does get circumcised. Now why? What's the difference between the two? These are both leaders. Uh, these are both men who pastor churches in Gentile regions. Why is it important that Titus has the opportunity to say no, and that Tim Timothy has the opportunity to say yes, and what's the difference between the two of them? 
Okay, now if you remember, now we're going to talk about this later on in Acts, but if you remember from previous messages or other times that we've talked about this, Timothy comes from a, uh, both a Greek and Jewish background. His mother was Gentile, and his his father was um, uh, was Jewish. And so because of the people that, that, that Timothy would be ministering to, the people that he would be preaching the gospel to, Paul and Timothy both decided that it would be important for him to get circumcised. In other words, it was a matter of ministry and it was a matter of testimony and it was a matter of conviction that they decided to do that. It was not a matter of salvation. Timothy was already saved. Timothy had already received by faith the grace that Jesus Christ had extended to him, but it was a choice of ministry. Um, it, was a, it was a choice in his liberty in Jesus Christ to be circumcised. Titus, on the other hand, was going to minister to primarily Gentiles, and he didn't find himself ministering to Jews the way Timothy and Paul were. So he made the decision that he did not need to be circumcised, and it was his liberty to do so. But it's this idea, this is the contention that sits at the very center of this. Now, Paul refers to the guys that are fighting with him on this issue as false brethren that snuck into Antioch without him knowing and preached this doctrine. And in, do, in doing so, they sought to damage the grace of God by forcing religious duty upon the simplicity of the gospel. So here's our very first key point. The greatest enemies of the gospel have always been and will probably continue to be those who want to add to it. In other words, people who want to impose upon the gospel some sort of other idea. They want to mingle in some sort of some sort of religious duty or perspective or work. Um, these are the greatest enemies throughout the history of the church against the gospel and the simplicity of the grace of Jesus Christ. Okay, I don't know if you've ever watched this show, Nailed It. My kids love this show. It's on Netflix. But what they do is they take, it's a game show where they take, uh, you know, a master baker uh, and, and they take them and they, they, they bake a cake or a cupcake or some sort of, you know, delicious baked good. And they make some sort of masterpiece. And it's usually incredibly ornate with all these flowers and figures and things. And then they take these very simple people uh, who've never done much baking in their whole life. And what they do is they invite them to come and to follow a recipe so that they can um, recreate the masterpiece that was created by this, this master chef. And so they invite these nobodies in and they give them the recipe. Now, let me explain to you. If they followed the recipe, okay, if they followed it step by step according to what was there, they would probably be able to produce something beautiful, right? And that they would be able to approximate what the, what the, what the, the chef had created. But here's the problem, and this is what makes the show funny, is that these people refuse to follow the recipes for whatever reason. What they want to do is they always want to add to the recipe. They think that they can make it better or they think that it'll save time or energy. And so what they do is they impose their perspective on the simplicity of the recipe. And in so doing, they create disasters. And that's the funny part of the show, right? So like they go to reveal what they've created and the, the, they, they show it to the chef and, and their job is to say, nailed it. And then they show it and it's this like awful hideous thing that they created and uh, usually tastes like trash and it's funny watching the, the chefs you know eat it and it's what makes the show great but listen it's what makes the gospel detestable it's what makes the simplicity of the gospel detestable that people will not are not willing to follow the simplicity of what God has given them in terms of the recipe there's not any different between 
between this example that I'm giving you and what people do to the gospel every single day. And we talked about this last time we were together, but people take the gospel, the simplicity of it, the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the grace, the forgiveness, the the peacefulness that comes with knowing Jesus Christ, the simplicity of justification, the simplicity simplicity of the atoning work, and they add to it. They seek to, to defile it. And many of them don't even know that they're doing it. These are traditions of men that have been handed down to to them from generations. And and so, you know, an example of that is how many people believe and are convinced that that baptism, the the, the physical act of being dunked in water, saves them. That a a work of man, that that a physical thing that I did, I get in the water, I come out, and I'm saved because this thing that I do uh, and this is super true among the sacraments. You know, the Catholic Church still holds to the sacraments that if you take of the Eucharist, that if you're baptized as an infant, if you do these things that a good Catholic should do, that ultimately that they refer to these things as the sacraments of grace, that somehow they bestow upon a person grace if they're done and they're held to. There are people that think that because they go to a certain church or of a certain denomination, uh, that they are that they're somehow uh, entitled to salvation through that. There are people that believe that 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 their salvation comes somehow through receiving the, the this gift of speaking in tongues, and they think that if they believe on Jesus Christ and this gift of speaking in tongues to them uh, uh, comes to them, that somehow that makes them saved. There's people that believe that because they've grown up in church their whole lives, right? You've you've come across people like this. Hey, uh, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yeah, I grew up in church. And that's the response. They believe that because they were, uh, they've been a part of uh, some sort of religious entity or they've grown up you know, attending on Sundays or they've been sitting in a pew for most of their life, that somehow that saves them. And there are people that believe that because you've come across these people as well, you're giving the gospel and they say, well, I believe that, yeah, I believe that I'm going to heaven and I believe that I'm saved because I've, I've done X, Y, Z, I'm good, I, I'm, I'm kind towards people, I love people, um, and so I, I think that I'm saved. And they're convinced of that. They're convinced of their eternal salvation because they've been good or, or, or just you know, just as wicked and depraved is this idea that, that their salvation is retained. Maybe someone accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And they believe that their eternal security is based upon what they do and how they act. And listen to me, all of these things defraud the simplicity and the grace of Jesus Christ. And this is how Paul refers to it in Galatians chapter 1. He refers, uh, refers to people who teach these things, whether they do so ignorantly uh, or they do it intentionally. It doesn't matter. These are procurers of false doctrines, and these people are false teachers. They're false brethren. In other words, if you don't believe on the simplicity of the grace of Jesus Christ, and you're adding to that, you believe in a false doctrine, and this is to be taken very, very seriously. Galatians 1.8 says, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, that, then that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. I think that's pretty serious language. I think that's very, very powerful and serious and sober language that Paul uses there in Galatians chapter 1. That if any person comes and preaches any other gospel than the simple one of grace that we've extended to you, then let that person be accursed. That's serious language. And we know, and many of you have heard this from, uh, from, man, this is a verse that we talk about all the time, a passage we talk about all the time. We know that our salvation 
is rooted in the gift of grace that's been extended to us in Jesus Christ. And the doctrine of Scripture proves this over and over again. And one of the the, the primary sources of this doctrine is here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved." And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Verse 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, belief, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. In other words, if you could do something, if you could be baptized, if you could you know, speak in some sort of, of, of angelic tongue, if there was a good deed that you could do, if there was a sacrament that you could take in order to earn God's favor, then guess what? When you get to heaven, you can boast of what you did to be saved. And that undermines the power, the authority, the beauty, and the worship that God deserves. When you get to heaven, you don't get to brag on what you did. That's the whole point of Jesus Christ coming and dying and raising again, is there was nothing that you could do to begin with to earn that salvation. Listen, we cannot afford to confuse the gospel. The doctrine of the gospel is the starting point. It's the hope of salvation. It's our rebirth and our ministry. And if we mess that up, then it's faith. Uh, then it's safe to assume that we won't get anything right. So you want to talk about, man, you want to have the right eschatology. You want to have the right perspective on Scripture. You want to divide the Word of God rightly. You want to have all of the doctrines uh, understood and, and have those things correct. But guess what? You can't have any of those doctrines correct. You can't have any of your perspectives on Scripture right. If you can't get the, the gospel of salvation right, you're not, you're not going to get any of those things right. If you can't understand the simplicity of the grace of Jesus Christ, and this is why Paul takes this battle so seriously. He takes this fight serious. It's the reason that he goes to Jerusalem to have this debate, because... The defrauding of grace is very, very serious. All right, so the guys are debating. They're all gathered together. They're, you know, as guys do, they're debating the issue. And they're hanging out. And uh, and so Peter has been quiet up to this point. But Peter, who's an authority in, Jer- in Jerusalem and an apostle, speaks up. And he recollects this story back from Acts chapter 10. When he, uh, when when the, a vision came to him, and revealed to him that the gospel would go to the Gentiles, you guys are familiar with the story because we covered it. See, here's what Peter says: Acts chapter fifteen, verse seven says, "And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago, eight years ago, in fact, it was eight years prior, that all of this went down when Peter saw the vision, right." A good while ago, God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So Peter's making a direct reference to that time. Now, you guys remember this story. Peter has a vision. The sheet comes down. Inside of the sheet, there are, you know, there's lobster tail and shrimps and, you know, shrimp cocktail and and all of these beautiful, wonderful foods that we love so much. Uh, I'm so sorry for those of you who are, you know, allergic to seafood. I, I love sushi. It's amazing. There's there's sushi in the sheet and it comes down and it descends. And and God says to Peter, he says, Peter, kill a pig and eat a pork sandwich already. Right? 
eat as the Gentiles do. Now, now God has to reveal this vision to him three times before it begins to sink in with Peter because it's such a big deal. Because what God's asking him to do is to, bro- to break the law, to break to break the tradition that he grew up with, the thing that he, he thought was holy that's been infringed upon by God himself. And what God, God is saying is, look, I'm preparing you to go to the Gentiles. And we know from the story that he does, right? Uh, Cornelius' guys show up to the house he's staying at. He goes, he preaches the gospel. Cornelius and his whole house get saved. And, 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 and there's rejoicing in that. Now in Acts chapter 11, he has to go defend himself before... Um, uh, those elders in Jerusalem were like, hey, we've been, we've been hearing you've been eating pork sandwiches. And he has to defend the fact that God has, has done this thing. And they, in that moment, they believe him. They, they say, okay, we can see that God is at work in the lives of the Gentiles. But this matter of whether or not salvation comes through both belief and the Mosaic law, apparently it had not been fully reconciled. And so Peter is telling them, he's saying like, look, guys, remember, we went over this. Remember eight years ago when I explained to you that the door of salvation had been opened to the Gentiles and I told you that Cornelius and his whole house were saved and that the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 11, verse 14 and 16, 14 through 16, he's telling them and that, that, that the Spirit descended upon them and that their simple belief resulted in salvation. Acts 15, 8 says, and God, which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness Okay, Peter goes on and he says, God himself bore witness of their salvation. Well, how did he do that? He gave them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. In other words, he's, other words what his argument is, is guys, remember, the Holy Spirit came to them as soon as they believed. That, that, you know, they didn't partake of circumcision, when Cornelius and his house got saved, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they were saved and they were sealed and they were forgiven at the moment of their belief. You don't remember that? So Peter says here, look, God himself bore witness of their salvation by imparting the Holy Spirit to them. Verse 10, now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Right? There was no way that they were that, that that we were going to ever fulfill law we were never going to earn god's favor we were never going to come to grace through the works of the law so what makes you think that we have to have that now and and what makes you think that we should force that upon the gentiles simply because that's what you're used to doing because that's your your view of what being religious is. We're going to force that upon the Gentiles. No, God is at work in the Gentiles and all of us get saved the same way. It is through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This leads us to key point number two. The gospel is not an agent of bondage, but freedom. In other words, God extends to us a freedom. He sets us free from the religious laws that were once required among the Jewish people. And that salvation comes to us through grace, uh, uh, through the grace of the cross and in faith in that work, that finished work, not by the law. Uh, when, when, uh, you know, you know, when God saved a bunch of lawless Greeks in Acts chapter 10, he didn't force upon them the law. These were lawless people. And these were men and women who accepted him freely and they were set free. And they were not forced into the bondage of the law. They were set free. Verse 11, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
we shall be saved even as they. That's Peter's message, his final words to them. Look, just the way they were saved, these Gentiles were saved, and they're being saved is the same way we're saved. It is through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's let's not let's let's undo this thinking. Let's undo this idea that there's something that we have to do to earn God's favor. Let's stop forcing that upon our brethren in this regard. And listen to what it says in verse 12. Then all the multitudes kept silent. In other words, how do you how do you argue with that? How do you argue with grace? It's so powerful. This message is so powerful. You're going you're gonna to impose your perspectives upon such a, a beautiful and masterful creation as the death, burial, and resurrection. You're going to defraud that with some sort of religious work. So here we have the evidence of Peter's own mouth and the testimony of God that he's purifying the hearts of the Gentiles by faith. Now we have more witnesses. Next up, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Verse 12, Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. So Paul and Barnabas chime in and they recount the miracles that are done in the midst of the Gentiles. They're saying, okay, we went on this missionary journey and we visited all of these regions where Gentiles were and they were accepting uh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were being saved. And that was evident in the fact that miracles were being worked out in their midst. We saw all the things that we saw in, in, in Acts chapter two in Jerusalem, all those things that we saw with Cornelius, those things were being manifest again and again and again in each of these cities where we delivered the gospel message and it was received and the church was established. So there's evidence that God is at work. And so we have the we have Peter's testimony, we have Paul's testimony, we have Barnabas' testimony, and next up is Brother James. Now James is an authority in Jerusalem, and he's gonna step up to the plate and he's gonna recap all the things that Peter said, and he's gonna stand with it and he's gonna defend it and he's gonna put his stamp of approval. Listen, verse 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered saying, notice that they held their peace again. James answered saying, men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agreed the words of the prophets. In other words, he's saying, look, even the prophets, even our fathers told us that this day was coming. It says, verse 16, after this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David. And so this is James, uh, um, you know, reciting scripture, the table of David, which is fallen down, and I will build upon the ruins thereof, and I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. In other words, God tells the Jewish people, look, there's coming a day when the Gentiles will receive the gospel, okay? There will be a time in which they are drawn to me, and I will receive them. Now listen to what he says. Wherefore, my sentences, in other words, his conclusion on the matter is that we trouble not them. Trouble not Paul. Trouble not Barnabas. Trouble not these Gentile believers. Why? Which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. It's clear that the Gentiles are turning to God. Why would we bother them with that? Why would we get in the way? Why would we force upon them the thing that we can't even we can't even abide by ourselves? Why would we force that upon them? Let's stop that. And so he slaps their hands. They set the thing right. Um, and so what he does is they agree, and we can see this uh, in in you know the remainder here. We don't have time to get into all of it. But what they do is they agree to write letters, epistles from Jerusalem with the apostles' signatures on it to be delivered to the cities in Antioch and, and the other cities where the, the Judaizers had been saying, look, we believe 
that grace is extended to the Gentiles by faith, and you do not need to partake of the circumcision in order to be saved. That's a huge, huge deal. Now, before we conclude, James takes a sidebar here. Okay, He makes a side note. Before they adjourn the meeting, before they, they call close to the council in Jerusalem, James says, I've got one more thing I need to say. And he says in verse 19, Wherefore my sentence is this, that we trouble not them, which among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them, uh, them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, uh, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And then they write the letters and they send them. Now listen to me. Upon reading this, you're going to say to yourself, okay, so James is saying out of one side of his mouth, he's saying, yeah, grace, 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 grace. The simplicity of the gospel. Faith through the grace of Jesus Christ, yes. And then on the other side of his mouth, what he's saying is, but you need to make sure you're abstaining from, from blood and animals that are strangled and blah, 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 right? So, so it's, he sounds contradictory in this regard, all right? But that's not what's happening. Of course, that's not what's happening. It doesn't even make sense. These guys have been debating this issue this whole time, and he's going to say, yes, grace, 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 and then he's going to say, okay, that's not, that's not what's happening here. What is happening here? No, what James is conveying is something very, very, very important. Okay, what he's saying is that Gentiles must recognize that because they're coming from a Greek pagan cultural background, they must be careful. So, so just as the, as the Jews must not impose their law upon the Gentiles, the Gentile believers ought not impose their liberties upon the Jews and cause offense. Okay, did you hear what I'm saying here? Just as the Jews shouldn't force the law of Moses. That, that that would be an infringement, okay? Uh, that they should not force the law on the Gentile believers. Well, the Gentile believers should. Let me shut the door here. Um, Gentile believers should, in the same heart and the same sentiment, be careful about what they do, so not to be a stumbling block to their Jewish brethren who may be weaker who may not understand their liberty, may not understand the background that they've come from, they ought to be careful. Now, Peter reiterates this idea, this concept, in chapter 2, verse 15 of his first letter. It says, For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God, honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, what is this saying? See, the counsel that James and Peter are giving here, it's profound. We have a responsibility to the gospel to not let our freedoms jeopardize or impede the gospel. See, okay, this is what I'm saying, is that because we have liberty doesn't mean that we have the right to go around and exercising our liberty because it could do two things. It could impede the work of the gospel. In other words, uh, you don't want the lost world to be able to point their finger at you and say, oh, they're just like me. Oh, they're not any. What makes them so special? Oh, they call themselves a Christian. Oh, they, they talk about grace, but look at them. Their lifestyle is just like, is not any different than any lost person. Okay, so you want to put to silence ignorant men through the liberty of grace in your life. 
And also you, uh, you want to protect, okay, you want to protect the faith of younger believers who come from different cultural backgrounds, who might have had other things taught to them or raised into them, uh, nurtured into their perspectives. You want to protect them from your liberties that might cause a stumbling block to younger believers. Okay, so here is key point number three. Liberty is God setting us free to silence the ignorant and to love the body of Christ. That's what liberty is about. Liberty is God setting us free to silence the ignorant and love the body of Christ. Liberty is not an occasion to the flesh. Liberty is not your opportunity to do this or that. Liberty is your opportunity to exercise uh, uh, grace upon both the lost world and the saved. Now check it out. This is the reason why I wanted to cover the Titus and Timothy thing because it's the perfect example of what we're talking about here. Uh, the story of Titus and Timothy is a great example of, of liberty being worked out. See, Titus had the conviction to minister among the Gentiles. T Titus had the conviction to not be circumcised. And that was completely fine and appropriate for the people that he ministered to. In other words, um, his conviction and his, and his desire to minister informed his decision-making, informed the way that he exercised his liberty. Now, on the other hand, we have Timothy. And for Timothy, he knew that he had to be circumcised. And his liberty uh, led him to do something that was probably very uncomfortable and not very fun. Okay, But he did it as a way of, of taking on the, the gospel ministry in his life and to make himself a more effective minister and to bestow grace and extend the message of grace to a people group that he wouldn't otherwise be able to reach. Does this? I hope this makes sense. And so, so what we have here is an example in Titus and Timothy. Now, in closing, I want to I make sure that I make something very clear. Grace itself cannot be an occasion to the flesh. In other words, when we're talking about grace, it is not liberty for us to do whatever we want to do. That's called antinomianism, right? Is this idea, Paul addressed it in Romans, right? God forbid that you think that because you're saved by grace that you can go around and live and act however you want. You can go acting like the heathen. You can go get drunk on the weekends. You can go, you know, do this or do that do, and live. Now, now, does grace cover that? Does grace cover this multitude of sins in your life? Are you washed pure of your sin? Sure. Does, is grace upon you? Do you have lots of liberty? Can you exercise that liberty? Sure, but not if it causes a brother to stumble. And not if it's wickedness in your heart. And not if it infringes upon the truth of God's word. In other words, you don't get to abuse grace with liberty. No, liberty is an agent of grace. And, and the flip, the reverse of that is true too. Don't be like the Judaizers who say, say um, works with grace. You know, you've got to do these things. Oh, you want to live holy? You want to live holy? Okay, you might, you might be saved you know, you might have been saved, but listen, your hair is too long. And if you really want to be holy, you've got to cut your hair. Or you've got to dress this way. Or you've got to eat this way or act this way. And so what we're saying is, this is, this is we refer to this as, as legalism. Or in the last Postscript episode, Alan referred to this as convictionalizing, right? Where, where pastors or leaders or people, they have a particular conviction. And they take that, that, that law of their life 
and they force it upon those that they minister to and they say, oh, well, if you want to be holy, then you've got to do these things that I'm convicted about doing. And that's, that's a false holiness. That is called legalism. And so we've got to make sure that we're careful not to place the expectations we have on ourselves on other people. And, and to be, be honest, when, when our conviction, convictions are arbitrary and they're not found in God's word, we're in danger of having a false holiness in our own life. So be very careful about imposing laws even upon yourself because there's no way that you're going to perfectly meet the laws and the boundaries and the expectations that you set up, particularly if they're arbitrary particularly if you can't find them in God's word. So be real careful to not be legalistic in your own life and be extra careful not to impose your your views uh, of what holiness is on other people because that's going to result in stunted growth across the board and it's going to hinder the work of the gospel and it will ultimately affect grace. No, grace is for salvation and grace is so that we can prefer others over ourselves and grace is is our opportunity to practice liberty in the lives of those that we love and serve every single day. Grace is so that that we can bestow the simplicity, we can extend the simplicity of the gospel to every person uh, that we meet, every person that we love, every person that we want to see in the kingdom of God. That's what grace is about. And we ought not force any sort of man-made construct upon what God has called beautiful and masterful. And we don't we, we not, are not abuse or 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 um, poison the beauty of the message of Jesus Christ and the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection. Listen, in verse 30 of Acts 15 it says, So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch. So Paul and Barnabas, Titus, the guys, they leave, they go to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude in Antioch together, they delivered the epistle. Now listen to the response which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. There was a collective sigh of relief. And that's what grace does. There's a, there's a, there is a, a sense of, man, Jesus loves me just the way that I am. And I don't have to earn his favor. There's not anything I have to do to earn his love. He loves me. And Jesus died for me. And he rose again for me. And he extended that love to me that I might receive it. Just simply lay hold on it and know it. And I don't have to be, I don't have to look any particular way. I don't have to be any particular type of person. There's not some sort of thing that I have to do, some arbitrary rule or law that I have to, to abide by. No, 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 no. I can simply lay hold on it. And the liberty that that gives me allows me to be any kind of person that I need to be to make sure that others can receive that simple message of grace as well. That's the power. That's the power. And that is why we must fight against any sort of false and heretical idea that that it's grace plus some sort of man-made or works-based construct. We must preach the gospel and we must point out any time someone preaches a false gospel, we must point it out and protect our brothers and sisters from it in love. So I hope that makes sense. Uh, I'm going to pray us out. Um, I hope that that was an encouragement to you. I hope that you're strengthened by that. And I really hope that the audio worked this time uh, so that I don't have to preach this again. I love you guys. You're my favorite people. And um, I just pray God's favor all over you. And I pray grace in the season. And I pray that you're liberated even right now to be used 
and to be set free, that you would have peace in your heart and that you would know that you've been forgiven by the grace of Jesus Christ. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I thank you again for this time. You are so good to us. Lord, I pray that we would live in the grace that you've extended to us and that we would not use that liberty as an occasion to the flesh. We would use it to be a proclamation of who you are, that we, it would cause us to love the brethren and to be sacrificial towards them, but that we would protect them from, from stumbling blocks of any sort. And Lord, that our liberty would put to silence foolish and wicked men and Lord, that we would in every corner refute false gospels that seek to, to, to undermine the beauty and the simplicity of your recipe for salvation. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you guys, and I'm praying I'll see you soon. Bye. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.